Well, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is our passage this evening. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Before we look at the text, let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, we want to know you, not just in our minds, but we want to really know you. And please, by your grace and by your mercy, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you give us a clear understanding of your word and in the power of your spirit uh, that you would continue to save uh, your church and bring us a final salvation? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 for context. Uh, before we focus most of our time on verses 8 through 11. In verse 1, we read this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. One of the things that robs us of Christian joy the most is a confidence in anything other than Jesus Christ. And what threatens our joy in the Lord is a building up of our lives instead upon who we are and what we have done and what we continue to do. These verses, Paul pulls back the curtains a little bit, gives us a brief testimonial of what used to make him tick. Of all the people in the first century who could boast about who they were and what they've done, it was Paul himself. He gives his credentials right here. Of all of humanity, he was a Hebrew. That's the chosen race. And of all of the Jewish people, he was from a very select and honored tribe, Benjamin. This is the tribe that produced Israel's first king, Saul, which is Paul's given birth name, Saul. LeBron James, his son's name is LeBron James Jr. That's a basketball name. Whenever you hear that name, you're reminded of who his father is. He takes four to five steps every drive. LeBron James Jr., the same blood flows in his veins. Paul's name is Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, Israel's first king. The same blood flows in my veins. This is a boast of pedigree. And so of all the people in the world, Paul is a Hebrew. Of all the Hebrew people, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And from that elite bloodline, Paul was part of a family that didn't lose its language or its heritage. Throughout years of Hellenization, throughout years of this Greek influence watering people down over the generations. I'm Chinese-Korean. I don't speak Chinese or Korean. 
My wife's Japanese. She speaks no Japanese. That's what happens when you live in another land. You lose your culture unless you're very intentional. Paul's family did not lose their heritage. They stuck to the course no matter who their neighbors were. Paul learned Hebrew in his home, was taught the Old Testament from his youth, was led by mom and dad. Don't lose any of this. Saul, all of that lineage, that pedigree, you can't earn that. You had to be born into that. Now, in addition to that birthright of sorts, Paul also had to work his butt off. He wasn't someone who used his hours on relaxation and leisure and thus never achieved anything. No, he's very concentrated, absorbed in his craft, ambitious for more, willing to work. His best days were spent pressing forward. Paul was a, a phenom. He was the up-and-comer. He had all of the potential in the world. He became an elite Pharisee. Only 6,000 people made it to that level out of millions. And he did this as a single man in a culture where everyone got married. And out of all the Pharisees, he was personally mentored by the leading expert of his day, Gamaliel. This is the Harvard, Stanford of education. Paul was exceptionally zealous, blameless. He stood head and shoulders above everyone in terms of religious achievement. No skeletons in his closet, no shadiness to unearth. And when people would drop out because of the rigors of the academics or from moral failure, Paul did not drop out. He always performed. He always came through. And when you made it in his field, you achieved a level of recognition. He carried political power, religious power, great influence over the masses. It was a lucrative career. These guys were the leaders in their culture, held in very high esteem, people who knew who they were. Paul walks down the street, they knew who he was. And so if anyone could boast in their heritage, their privilege, and their own accomplishment, if anyone felt confident in who they were because of how they performed, it was this man, Paul. It's said that the most special people are those with great ambition, some driving motivation, some mastering principle which controls them, and nowhere is that seen more clearly than when someone threatens everything you poured your life into and everything you built yourself up to be. That's when you find out how controlling your passions really are. And when Paul was confronted with the message of Jesus Christ, cross, death, resurrection, all of Christ, that gospel message threatened everything Paul had worked so hard for, it infuriated him. You ever see someone so passionate for something, how they act when something threatens it? My two older boys, you see them running around? They love Legos. They'll build all afternoon. Our youngest wakes up from his nap, <laughs> destroys them all. You see their passion for Legos express itself in rage. Everything I've built, it took so long. Some of us are so structured in our parenting. Watch us turn to mama bear when someone messes with our kid's schedule or their diet. The sweetest ladies can turn into beasts. This is my life. Getting ahead in career, the sacrifices people are willing to make, even family, health, Jesus, 
to get ahead. When something or someone threatens our own little world, we are often willing to cross a line to defend it. That's when Paul began to get Christians jailed and killed because of their message, Jesus Christ alone. And then Paul became a Christian. His self-protection, his self-advancement, his own little world began to mean nothing to him anymore. His eyes were elevated to a higher place, to Jesus Christ. They were removed from himself. Brothers and sisters, in whatever pursuit you are in, whatever your ambitions are, whether they be career or how your family ought to look or your education or your cash or your status, it will eventually come colliding and be in competition with the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And only one will be your master. You will love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. There is no middle ground, really. And Paul says right here, whatever gain I had, pedigree, accomplishment, decades of me, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. None of that performance, bloodline, none of that can add to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, focusing on who I am and what I can do took me away. It made me fiercely against this gospel and drove me further and further from God himself. That's Paul's testimony. The false teaching that began to arise in the first century because of generations of Jewish heritage as Gentiles were being saved, we looked at this. We got a demon-possessed slave girl, formerly, likely in the first congregation at Philippi. We got a formerly suicidal jailer in the congregation at Philippi. We got a businesswoman, Lydia, in the congregation at Philippi. Super diverse church. And as Jewish people started to hear the gospel, they say, wait, 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 wait. Sure, you need Jesus. Absolutely, you need Jesus. But you guys need to get circumcised, eat like we do, talk like we do, do what we do to be a real Christian. And Paul, after decades of building himself up, he says, don't listen to these dogs. Jesus Christ is enough. He's enough. Your ambition should not be to build yourself up. And that's where we land in verse 8. Paul continues in his pursuit of him. We read in verse 8, indeed... I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's desire, his life's present aim, his highest ambition currently is to gain Jesus Christ and to know Jesus Christ. Every other pursuit is rubbish. Whether it be a religious pursuit or a worldly pursuit, it's all excrement rubbish. He's using very graphic, even vulgar language. There is a surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ so much that it makes even other decent things look like doo-doo. Now, Paul is not writing this as a new believer. I want to know Christ. No, he's been a Christian for about 30 years at this point. He already has Jesus Christ. And yet his singular passion in this life is to continue to gain him. And with all of his effort to win him. It didn't stop. I read this quote on Desiring God. This from A.W. Tozer, a book, Pursuit of God. 
He says, how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We've been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. This is set before us as the last word in orthodoxy and is taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian ever believed otherwise. Thus, the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on that subject is crisply set aside. The experiential heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of Scripture, which would have certainly sounded strange to an Augustine, a Rutherford, or a Brainerd. True grace creates a desire for more grace. The present-day widespread idea that Christianity is centered only upon a single act in our personal history, which saves us from hell, and is not defined currently by a continuing desire to know God more, would have sounded indeed demonic to a man like Paul. Brothers and sisters, any kind of so-called Christianity which is satisfied with a superficial knowledge of our Lord and no longer pursues him? That's not biblical Christianity. Do you want Jesus Christ? Do you want him? Is that what characterizes your greatest pursuit in this life? Is this your highest ambition? That you might know your God all the more deeply. Paul's here is 30 years into his Christianity, church planter, great apostle, Gentile missionary, seasoned believer. Here he is, still desiring with all of his heart and practically with all of his mind. Everything's rubbish. I want to gain Christ. Takes all my effort to know him more personally and more intimately and to deepen this relationship. Is that you? Is that us? to know him, to gain him, that all other pursuits in our lives are dim by comparison with this white-hot zeal of pressing into Jesus more and more. Jesus says himself in John 17, 3, he's praying to his Father. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is eternal life. It's not knowing about the Lord. That's, it can be cheap and easy. We can just read a couple of books or blogs, gain some head knowledge. This is knowing Him. Not just reading facts about God, but fellowship with God, which is eternal life, brothers and sisters. To know Him, to press into our relationship with the Son, is the very heart and essence of Christianity. To know Him is what it fundamentally means to be a Christian. Every other religion is about following rituals and rules, rites and regulations, but the Christian wants to know his Lord and his Savior. That's why Paul, at his conversion, counted, past tense, counted all of his previous unbelieving life as loss. 
all that rule-keeping, religious posturing. I didn't know God, and that's why Paul, present tense, 30 years later, continues, continues, continues to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior. He continues to count it as loss. Not just his Jewish heritage back then, but everything currently as loss for the gain of knowing Christ Jesus right here, right now. It's ongoing. You know, when I first met my wife, I spent all day doing nothing. We ate burritos and drank Diet Cokes and did nothing else. But get to know each other. What'd you do all day? Nothing. It's amazing. Over the period of months, my time in the gym started to shrink. Belly started to grow. It didn't matter. My boys, my guy friends, saw them a little bit less, less basketball, less everything. They would tell me I was selling out. It didn't matter. Sure, I lost a lot of that, but I gained Laura. Wanted to gain more. Grow in that relationship and trust and in intimacy. I wanted to know everything I could know about her. That's just a human relationship with a finite and sinful person. Paul in his pursuit of his Lord. He lost his career. Family and friends, his colleagues. They turned against him. Everything he built his life to be, every hour of political advancement, moving up the ranks, making a name for himself in one swoop. You know what his colleagues started to do? They wanted to get him killed. It was all gone. He counted that past tense gone as lost for seven. Think about losing everything you have right now in a moment. And even here, Paul's chained to a guard waiting to figure out if he's going to live or if he's going to get executed. His response to that, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What does that death mean? I'm going to know Jesus Christ in a way, in a depth, and in a breath that I couldn't know him in this life. It's gain. He writes as an ever-present choice, ongoingly, I can lose it all, I can continue to lose it all. If I sacrifice comfort and status, reputation, I count it all, loss, 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 and there's really no comparison indeed. There's five particles for emphasis in that one word. No better than dung is all of that. If I may know and lay hold of Jesus Christ more completely. Grow in that relationship to discover more and more of him to explore all that God is for me and my Savior. The fountain is endless. That's my ambition in the one life he's given to me. Now, the one who reasons in his or her mind that because God's grace is free and eternal life is unmerited by me and his Son is a gift for me, Christ alone for salvation, the one who reasons, well, then I don't have to work at all. I can be spiritually lazy and passive. Work less in my relationship with the Lord than I do at my job. Then we really don't treasure Jesus Christ at all. And what kind of salvation is that? If eternal life is defined by knowing him, and the way to gain Christ is in no other way than by losing everything we have, brothers and salvation is free. And yet it will cost you everything. And it's absolutely worth it. 
All the effort that Paul puts into his pursuit of his Lord is not to earn or merit or perform for the prize, but it's because he wants to experience this God who has so loved him and so saved him and so taken him by the shoulders and turned him around. Paul is utterly confident that the only that only the grace of God can save a man like him. And now his heart is fiercely set upon selling everything to get this pearl of great price, to experience it more and more. We're saved by God's grace, and then God's grace leads us by the hand to pursue all of him. And so Paul's highest ambition, the greatest pursuit, his deep-seated resolution is to willingly lose everything to know Jesus Christ. For the rest of our text, he spells out a bit of what that means. Verse 9, and we continue. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul wants to be found in Christ, so immersed in Jesus, so united to him that when God looks at Paul, he sees the purity and righteousness and beauty of the Son of God himself. Paul does not want to stand on his own two feet. He wants to be hidden in Jesus. Now, if anyone could stand on his own two feet before the Lord is Paul, obeyed the law to a T, raised in a religious household, strict standard of living, became a professional student of the Word of God as a Christian, imprisoned for Christ multiple times, scourged, shipwrecked, beaten, pelted with large stones, almost to the death, planted several churches in areas that never heard the gospel. Here he is chained, facing execution, still never gave up. He's been a missionary, traveled all over the place, seen conversions, miraculous things, God writes much of the New Testament through Paul. In terms of human works, Paul has some feet to stand on. Some righteousness he could call his own. Self-righteousness. Paul doesn't want any of that. You know, we who love to pile up the things we do right and all the ways we are not like those people over there, we need only shift our attention for a moment. Take inventory of the wicked thoughts we've had and the sinful desires that arise out of our own heart. The testimony today, Bang was talking about how the Lord dissected his heart, slicing that thing open to reveal what was inside. You only need to do that for about five minutes to know that we do not want to stand on our own two feet at the time of judgment and trust in who we are and what we have done and what we continue to do. Charles Spurgeon, he says this, it's more glorious to be justified by God than by ourselves. It's much more safe to wear the righteousness of Christ than to wear our own. Paul doesn't want any self-righteousness in his life. If we're to be saved at all, God has to be the one to save us. Jesus Christ lives a life that none of us have lived. Completely sin-free. You could dissect his heart and not find a grain of sin. He dies the death we all deserve. He's made sin for us to absorb the wrath of God upon that cross. Do to us. He rises from the dead. We can't do that. He rises from the dead for our justification, Romans 4.25, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us even now, all because he loves us, brothers and sisters. And the only thing that matters when all is said and done in any human life, 
The only thing that matters when all is said and done is that we are found in Christ Jesus. In a thousand years from now, that's all that's going to matter about anybody. That we're found in Christ Jesus because we believe. We trust in him, not in ourselves. We have faith in who he is and what he's done, not in who we are or what we've done. We don't stand on our own two feet. We put our faith in him. There's no other way we can be found righteous. This is what's called justification. I know you guys have been taught that here. It's legal terminology to explain how a sinful people can be viewed as righteous in the holy eyes of God and declared to be just before the judge of all who knows every one of our thoughts because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness and our own. You think about it. God knows everything about us. Every skeleton in our closet. Every adulterous thought, every self-exalting mindset, every bit of our heinous pride, every gory detail of it all. Washed whiter than the snow because we're found in Christ Jesus. It's irreversible. The declaration cannot be destroyed. The believer can never be unjustified unless you can uncrucify and unresurrect the Savior or make him sin. And Paul is thinking about life and death a lot right now. He vacillates in this letter. I'm going to see you again soon. But if I don't, but I want to, I may, but I might not. He's not sure. He's thinking about life and death a lot in his chains. His thought at this moment, I'm found in Jesus Christ. So wrapped him in him. And that's all that matters. It's everything. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul is the question Jesus asked in Mark 8, 36. It's a redundant question. That's why every other pursuit and all other kinds of gain is rubbish to Paul. I want to approach God on the basis of Christ's achievements, not my own. Any righteousness of our own would quickly crumble if we could find any. Verse 10, he continues. That... I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to identify with Jesus Christ very practically in his actual life. He wants to be like Jesus Christ. This verse describes a great deal of what happens in sanctification. This is a process of becoming more and more like Jesus experientially in our own lives. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. Sanctification is a practical process of becoming righteous. And here specifically, Paul wants to know Jesus Christ in the power of his resurrection, in a willingness to suffer with him and to die as Christ died. What does that even mean? The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power at work in each Christian to make us holy and to deepen our relationship with God, to strengthen our perseverance, to enable us to understand the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it takes nothing less 
then the resurrection power of God, the same power that defeats death, it takes nothing less than that to make us more holy and to conform us to Jesus Christ. It takes that kind of power to make us love to do his will rather than to do our own will. You know, one of our sons, he disobeys a lot. Actually, you know what? It's all of our sons. They disobey and they have a strong self-will. Self-will so strong, his self-interest is so mighty, he has to get his way. Otherwise, it's the end of the world. Tears come out of his face. And we lovingly discipline him and try and positively teach him submission to the Lord and submission to us. And many times we come to the end of ourselves. There's no external structure. There's no parenting style or blog you subscribe to. There's no how-to book. There's no spanking stick that has the power to change his little heart. And sometimes it gets so frustrated as if I can change his heart. You continue to act like this. It's going to mess up your relationships, son. Look at how you are with your brothers. Don't learn things the hard way. Just trust your daddy. Trust me, I love you. Sometimes I'm, it's like I'm talking to the mirror. Don't be so self-centered and self-absorbed. It's going to wreck your stuff. Just trust your father. He only wants good things for you. Now, what is powerful enough to change the human heart? It's the same with any of us, brothers and sisters. The only power that can change the human heart, the human heart that once fled from God, the heart that's still contaminated with selfishness, the only power that can change the human heart is the same power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. Paul wants to know Jesus Christ. That's his purpose in this life. He takes no pride in that, in the sense of self-exaltation. But he wants to know Jesus Christ. That's his purpose in this life and the next life. And he wants to know the same power of the resurrection in his own life. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into the death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul wants that newness of life in his own life increasingly. He has been made new, but he wants more. There's no complacency. Paul writes again in Ephesians, talking about wanting our eyes to be enlightened. Know our hope, the riches of our inheritance. To know, 119, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Christ was not raised from the dead only for justification. Christ was raised from the dead also for sanctification. It takes that amount of power which destroys death. It takes that kind of power to change us. And we have to make sure that we're clear on this. It's not that we are justified, declared righteous by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now, because we're justified, we better earn our sanctification. We better make ourselves more holy. We better perform to become more like Jesus Christ. We don't have that kind of power. We need the resurrection power of God himself. That's our only hope for sanctification. That's our only hope that the gospel take root, takes root in each of us. 
and to live a real new life. That's why Paul wants to know Christ. Even sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul, Hebrews 5.8 tells us that the Son of God learned obedience through what he suffered. As Paul suffers for being a believer in a world that didn't think too highly of Christianity, he's suffering with Jesus there. There's a deeper bond being built with his Savior as he experiences the same pain and a deeper obedience to be had. Acts 14.12, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says himself, the Christian life is about carrying a cross and denying ourselves. The Christian life is not one of superficial comfort all the time. We know that, do we not, at least to a degree. This world is not all bells and whistles. It's worse for the believer. You ever suffer because you're Christian? You ever suffer in our interaction with a broken and sinful world? The more you experience that, the more you identify with Jesus Christ himself. Man of sorrows, we sung earlier today. You know, our church, we have some ladies who have been married to an unbelieving spouse for three decades. Don't date or marry an unbeliever. Don't do it. Three decades, suffering, spouse making fun of you for believing that stuff. We're not going to raise our kids like this. Three decades of suffering, and it beckons these ladies to run to Jesus Christ more. As they hear that scorn and endure those words, they cling to Jesus, the Savior intimately was intertwined with unbelieving people and they begin to identify with his own obedience as they persevere. Some of you guys are the only believers in your entire family. Jesus' family called him crazy. And as you feel that in your face, it jumps out a lot more than when it's words on a blog or something like that. When someone calls you crazy for being a Christian, we heard that in our testimony too, you begin to identify more with your Savior. Become more Christ-like in that respect. Some of you guys are in college, school, the workplace. The Silicon Valley is not famous for its strong Christian influence. Surrounded by people who think Christianity should have been left way back in the past. And you can bury it and be ashamed of it. Or you can suffer. Cling to Jesus Christ more. To be unashamed. And your understanding of his own obedience begins to deepen in your own life. And your love for him, as he's right there with you, begins to grow. It's our deepest pains that we find ourselves closest to Christ. It's where we find out that he's actually sufficient. Our faith in God becomes more intense, our possession of him more secure, and right there, being made more like him, and in the pains of this world that we live in, we realize what a great, resurrected high priest he really is. It's where we get to know Christ more and become more like him to the point where Paul wants here to become like Christ in his death, to take up his cross and follow him. Paul's thinking, I'm going to die in the coming days. He writes in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Death is the gateway to life. 
dying to self to live for God. The world and sin is crucified to us as we are conformed to his death. That's the normal way of Christianity. Look, Paul's not some kind of masochist who's in love with pain and suffering. He's not. But he knows that the more he identifies with Jesus Christ, it's inevitable that he will suffer in this world. That's just going to happen to any of us. But at the same time, it's also the more he's going to be made like Jesus Christ in sanctification. God refines us in a fire. That's what it takes to melt dross away. And in suffering with Christ, we become like Christ. And in dying with Christ, he will be made more and more like Jesus to know him more. You know, when an unbeliever hears this, this life has zero appeal to him at all. You're going to go through all of that suffering and death just to know Jesus Christ more? That's all you get? Just give me a prayer to get out of hell. That's all I want. Everyone wants out of hell. Not everybody wants Jesus. It's not worth it, the unbeliever says. But when a Christian hears this, I want to be like Jesus. I want Jesus. Refine me. Then we begin to understand how it takes the resurrection of power of God to raise a dead heart to spiritual life. There's a reason why the power of God in the resurrection is listed before sharing Christ's sufferings because it's that power which sustains us through it all. This is our union with Christ experientially demonstrated in sanctification in an ever-increasing conformity to the Son of God where our former life suffers and dies so that we might find real life. He starts this text, rejoice in the Lord. These might be his last words to this little church he loves so dearly. This might be the last letter he writes. This isn't a crazy man with this giddy, weird joy. This is a Christian man who's found in Jesus Christ. Some of you guys are going through some stuff. That's, That's part of God's design again. Suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned you. No, he's right there with you. How many testimonies have we heard? Even this, in my darkest times, the providence of God. Here, here, here. Lincoln Duncan, he says this. How do you then live if you've been saved by grace? You look suffering square in the eye and you say, Lord, Don't waste one drop of my suffering. I want this to count for me being made like Jesus. You pray that. And if you have not suffered for Jesus Christ, the question we have to ask ourselves is why not? Why not? In doing all to avoid it, what we're actually avoiding is a deeper union with him. Matthew Henry, he says, observe the apostle was as ambitious of being sanctified as he was of being justified. The apostle was as ambitious of being sanctified as he was of being justified. Do you want to be 
as like Christ as much as you want to avoid hell? He was desirous to know the power of Christ's death and resurrection, killing sin in him and raising him up to newness of life to receive the benefit of Christ's death and resurrection in his life. Verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's end here is in view. He's looking into the future, the resurrection from the dead here. This is when Paul will finally be made perfect. When Christ returns for his people, this is called glorification. So we had justification, sanctification. This is called glorification. When we will be like Christ, for we will see him as he is, sharing in his own glory to experience the fullness of our salvation in its final form. One day, even we who had lived a former lifestyle of fleeing from God and of loving sin more than him, one day we will love the Lord perfectly with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul, and with all our strength. We'll do it perfectly. And we'll be able to enjoy all that God is for us in Jesus Christ as we see the Lord and all that he is being found in him. The work of God's grace will be complete. Suffering for Christ, death to self, is not our end. It's not our end. It's a means to a greater end of this final resurrection from the dead. Paul is confessing right here, by any means possible, whatever God's plans be, whether I die or live, whether I get to go here or not, see this church I love, don't get to. Whatever means possible, I want to know Christ and attain this final end with him, this full salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. It's all in Jesus Christ, not of myself. And my highest ambition, my greatest aim is to know him and be found in him. Everything else is rubbish. Uh, application. We'll just do this real quick. Small group dis questions. What are the things that are most important to you right now, brothers and sisters? Maybe you could write them down. What are the things that mean the most to you right now? If you had to think, last three months, what were my greatest ambitions, my highest hopes? my greatest aims. What would you write for that? Where are you placing your weight? We can only have one master. And by God's grace, our master loves us. He gave himself for us so that we might know the real joy of giving ourselves to him. What is our ambition? Is it the fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ? Is it a surpassing work where everything else looks like dung by comparison? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification is all of Jesus Christ and not of ourselves. 
Where would any of us be if an ounce of your salvation rested upon us? And by way of response, God, and the power of the resurrection, would you make our hearts run and strive and work and seek you with all of our might? We long for the day when we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We do it imperfectly now. And even then we get glimmers of how good you are when we're walking in fellowship with you. Our best times in life are when we're close with you. Make it more and more true for this church. Make it more and more true for all of us that we might have this unshakable joy in all of what you are for us in Jesus Christ. We sing songs to you now. We can't wait to be made perfect so we might enjoy you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.